Hello Ice Coffee listeners new and old, and young and old. Speaking of the elderly, I noticed the other day that in covering events in 1929, the series presently holds a temporal balance that puts the narrative in a new and unsettling perspective for me. I was born 45 years after the events recounted in the episodes covering Bird and Wilkins aviation feats in Antarctica, and it's 45 years since I was born. I must have been on some sort of bender for the first three or four years of my life as I only have the foggiest of disjointed memories from that era, but I've been awake and alert for around two-thirds of the rest of that span, so I now have a reasonable feel for how long ago the events I recount are, and that feels like a disturbingly short time. Anywho, after four episodes of foreshadowing, interviews and the contemplation of sewage, I turn my attention once more to actual Antarctic expeditioning. In this case, the British Australian New Zealand Antarctic Research Expedition, or Banzari, which is fun to say. In November 1926, the heads of state of the British Dominions met in London for the 7th Imperial Conference, at which the decline of the former empire was discussed and legislated, without ever actually overtly acknowledging that the empire was nearing its end. It was at this meeting that the Dominions were first described as co-equals and autonomous entities, in the Balfour Declaration, named for its progenitor, Arthur Balfour who hasn't featured in the series since episode 28, wherein I described his performance as Chancellor of the Exchequer, wherein he first tried to block funding for, and then claim credit for, the successes of Scott's first Antarctic expedition. The Balfour Declaration was the nice way of saying, Look at you, nation. You're a good nation. Who's a good nation? Don't seek independence or republic status or no more snacks and tummy rubs. Given that the British monarch still holds veto powers over the Australian government almost a hundred years later, I'm pretty pissed off at this. I know that veto power hasn't been exercised since 1975, when the Queen's representative in Australia, Governor-General Sir John Kerr, dismissed the then Prime Minister, Gough Whitlam. But that's not an excuse for that power remaining in place. Okay, so Queen Elizabeth II has been as benign and gracious a monarch as anyone might hope for in all of human history, but just look at the succession we face. As Australia has demonstrated and continues to demonstrate, we're capable of fucking up in all sorts of ways on our own, without an extra layer of bureaucracy lying on top of our governance by which King Charles the anti-vaxxer can stick his oar in and mess us about. The new bone thrown the dominions by the Balfour Declaration saw the first use of the term the Commonwealth in relation to those nations. So if I've used it in any previous episode, the term was inaccurate and I really meant vassal states, I mean, the Dominions. Leo Amory attended the meetings, and continued to lobby for annexation of as much of Antarctica as Britain could fit on its plate. With the dramatic upheavals of the years since his last attempt to get the whole of Antarctica under the British flag denting British Imperial Street credibility, the conference attendees concurred that any future efforts in the South should concentrate on the area between 45 and 160 degrees east, this span constituting the area British interests were most likely to receive the maximum possible respect from other nations. South African Prime Minister, General James Herzog, made it clear that his nation held no interest in exploring or claiming the Antarctic sector lying to its south, but this null ambition was the only real clarity the conference achieved on matters regarding that continent. No one had any plans to head south again, and no one could spot any mechanism by which to enhance the present annexation beyond the Falkland Islands and the Ross Dependencies. Negotiations with France saw the eastern boundary of a daily land, formally established by proclamation in 1924, pushed west a little to exempt Commonwealth Bay from the French claim, a move in part inspired by the drama of Mawson's horror sledging journey and the deaths of Ninnis and Mertz. The crosses on Cape Denison, by which the Australian Antarctic Expedition memorialised their lives, lay in King George V land with good French graces. In March 1927, the Australian National Research Council, a body co-founded in 1922 by Sir Edgeworth David, whose knighthood came through in 1920 for his services in the mining corps during the First World War, 
and who also served as the Council's first President, met to discuss the pressing issues facing Australia's tenuous claims on the Antarctic sector lying to its south. The Council fielded Antarctic knowledge and experience in its inclusion of John King Davis and Sir Douglas Mawson. These stoic Antarctic advocates expressed their concern at American ambitions in Antarctica as expressed in the developing plans of Richard Byrd, and Norwegian activities in the Southern Ocean, where whaling fleets cashed in on the Rorqual populations without paying a cent in licence fees or royalties to Australia, both standing to dent Australian potential in the Southern Ocean. With Mawson's pre-war Antarctic claims made unofficially, the British government having refused to give the Australian geologist the mandate to make official claims, the possibility of a return voyage was floated. Unwilling to fund another Mawson-led voyage south, the Australian government followed the Australian National Research Council's advice and sought the publication of letters in council similar to those proclaiming Commonwealth Dominion over the Ross Dependency, but the British government balked at the prospect of further paper castles. Something more definite was deemed necessary in the era of the Hughes Doctrine, where discovery of a place, and claims and flag raisings made there, were considered nice but inept means by which to annex that space unless followed up by occupation. The difficult logistics and climate associated with Mawson's previous efforts led to a conclusion that permanent occupation was impossible. But the efforts of Norway and Denmark to outdo each other in asserting dominance over Greenland did offer a model by which an internationally credible, at least to anyone other than Greenland Inuit, claims to unoccupied brackets, sick, brackets, territory might be couched without actually extending to permanent occupation. Redefine permanent occupation so it's synonymous with administration, and redefine administration so it's synonymous with mapping, charting, scientific investigation and temporary occupation, as well as flag raisings and claiming ceremonies, and redefine occupied so no bothersome indigenous people or their activities get in the way, and the Norway slash Denmark model kicks ass. Hermes Conrad would be proud, and would stamp the paperwork five times. Mawson, who regularly spoke publicly of Antarctica as part of Australia's heritage, lying, as such a large sector of it did, closer to the Australian shores than the distance between the eastern and western shores of the nation, a metric I wouldn't like to try to apply anywhere in Europe or South America, but terra nulli is going to null, I guess, discussed the matter directly with Australian Prime Minister Stanley Bruce in 1928, claiming that any funds put into an expedition would quickly cycle back into the Australian economy as revenue from whaling licences to foreign concerns, or as profits in Australian whaling companies farming, in the abattoir sense of the word, what he described as waters teeming with life and the pastures of the future. Powerful wording geared to inspire a nation accustomed to thinking of itself as growing rich off the success of its farmers. Australian whaling businesses were already a topic of much discussion among Australian industrialists, with Mawson standing to make an excellent living in the industry as a living resources consultant as soon as he returned from the proposed expedition with the data required to get the banks on board in bankrolling the necessary capital investments to get the industry up and running. Mawson played up faint rumours of Norwegian ambitions in Enderby land, but the Australian government prevaricated, kicking the can around for a year and a half, negotiating responsibility for expedition funds and resources with the governments of Britain and New Zealand. British bureaucrats, those potato-sharp arbiters of cause and effect throughout the time and space the British Empire occupied, threw the bones and scried that the USA posed no threat to Commonwealth domain over the sector in question, because Byrd concentrated his efforts outside it, and promised, very sincerely, that he wasn't heading south to make territorial claims, and that the Norwegians, by recognising British authority in the Ross and Falkland Islands dependencies, tacitly accepted British domain over the area between the two bailiwicks. Leo Amory stepped into the bureaucratic dialogue and asserted that even if the USA and Norway posed no threat to British dominion, which they actually did, France held historical precedence to at least part of the coast in question, and made formal claim to the sector stemming to the pole from that coast, and was increasingly showing interest in southern ocean whaling. Germany was also sending ships south to cash in on Wales, and while prior German territorial claims in Antarctica 
were considered null under the terms of the Paris Peace Conference. Those terms didn't extend into the future and preclude Germany making further claims based on post-war endeavours. The Chancellor of the Exchequer saw the merit of Amory's arguments and the Treasury released some funds. Australian Prime Minister Stanley Bruce Mr Prime Minister! Bruce! gave Mawson his mandate for the new expedition personally. Mawson should sail south to plant flags, map coasts and chart waters between Enderby Land in the west, a coast not seen since John Biscoe's visit in 1831, and Oates Land in the east. British government funding would provide the Discovery, after an extensive expensive refit, and its crew for two summers of Antarctic voyaging between late 1929 and early 1931, and New Zealand would provide some of the scientific contingent. The expedition aims, made clear by Lord Richard Casey in his correspondence with Prime Minister Bruce, centred on making as many landings and performing as many official flag raisings and claiming proclamations as possible, in order to bolster Australia's shaky, some might say non-existent, dominion over the region between Oatesland and Enderby Land, and thereby give Australia mandate to trench of any income deriving from the land of that sector and its adjacent waters. Aiming to keep this on the down-low and avoid exciting any other nation into similar endeavours, as happened in the three-way race south in the late 1830s, the four-way race south in 1902, and the five-way race south in 1912, any public statements about Mawson's new expedition needed to focus solely on the scientific aspects of the voyages. Turns out, this was a moot strategy, since Australia was, itself, being dragged into a race by the perceived actions of other nations. In August 1929, Mawson received a telegram from Lord Casey alerting him to the departure south of Lars Christensen's whaling ships, carrying two aircraft for use by the pilot explorers Hjalmar Larsen and Finn Lutzau Holm more of whom anon. Mawson's fears that the Norwegians, already operating in the south, might use their whaling stations as stepping stones and their whaling ships as logistic support to piggyback territorial ambitions into the blank spaces on the Antarctic charts and maps looked to be well founded. The only facet of their plan Larsen's representatives gave away was an ambition to visit and replace an emergency depot on Bovatoya. Keep in mind that maintaining emergency depots and refuge huts became a key poker chip in the power plays Denmark and Norway made in East Greenland. Such structures and management occupation administration gambits were new in Antarctic realms, but it became a popular strategy by which to stamp national footprints in the snow for some time after this period, and one such refugio received brief mention in one of the interviews in episode 81. More of such matters anon though. In spite of the free ship and crew, the funds made available to Mawson fell short of the minimum necessary to run the expedition, and public fundraising efforts began, giving Mawson an additional reason to try to distance the voyagers from their governmental ambitions, since the Australian public, as a general rule, don't like paying the taxes that get government projects up and running, and would likely resent someone passing the hat around to make up any difference owing on monies they felt they already paid once. Mawson had to science-watch the project as much as possible. To aid public perceptions that it wasn't a government expedition, the government passed responsibility for organising the expedition to the auspices of the Australian National Scientific Council, which established an Antarctic committee, drawing on Edgeworth David's experience in extensive networks, and the political and business connections and acumen of Sir David Orme Masson, last mentioned in the series as advisor on relief to the ITAE Ross Sea Party, and one of the progenitors of the CSIRO, the organisation that kept my sisters and I fed and shod throughout our youth by employing my father, the flammability researcher mentioned in episode 59. Donations came in, the largest boost in funds arising in response to a direct request from Sir Douglas, being £10,000 from confectionery magnate Macpherson Robertson whose chocolates were marketed under the contracted name McRobertson's. 
Prime Minister Bruce's direct requests for financial assistance only raised £1,750 from a variety of donors. While the depression had kicked off in the USA, it hit Australia hard. William Randolph Hearst was still making money and put forward £8,000 for publication rights. All up, Mawson raised more than half of the expedition funds from private sources through donations, sponsorships or in-kind support, outstripping the £26,214 brought together by the governments of Australia and Great Britain, which included the estimated charter value for the use of the ship by a clear £1,500. Given the debts he carried for years after the Australian Antarctic expedition, Mawson determined to keep things as economically efficient as possible and to not put a shore party on the ice for sledging, let alone establish a shore station. Keeping everything ship-based promised the best bangs for bucks in what quickly shaped up as a drive to get south, get ashore and get a flag raised. With no dogs and no prefab huts, the preparations for the expedition stood out as very different to those made for Mawson's AAE, and anyone paying attention might have spotted that science was taking a back seat. Another clue arose in the proposed path of the first voyage. Rather than sailing south from Hobart and using the prevailing winds and currents to transit westward, the voyage plan saw the discovery work down its easting from South Africa. This placed the expedition in a less advantageous position regarding any transit east, as it would set the discovery against the circumpolar winds and currents, but it did get them to Enderby land at around the same time Lars Christensen's Norvegia was anticipated in the region. Australian interests didn't want to be gazumped out that way for the sake of saving some coal while working along the latitudinal parallels. In a move listeners will recognise as a precursor to high-fail quotients, Mawson was placed in charge of the overall expedition and the ship, but Davis, who took leave of absence from his role as Director of Navigation for the Australian Federal Government, was given veto powers over Mawson's authority if he thought a given decision of Mawson's placed the ship and its complement in danger. Dun dun dun! Split leadership raises its ugly head once more. Where previously Davis served Mawson exceptionally well by getting him ashore with his gear and later retrieving him again, on this occasion they would stay together on the ship, and the mandate given Mawson by the Australian government, the aegis of the king, the knighthood he received for his previous Antarctic work, and the fact that he was Douglas Bloody Mawson, he of the solo trek and the South Magnetic Pole, would play merry hell in the relationship between the two men during their time aboard the Discovery. Where Wilkins' first mandate for claiming Antarctic territory arrived in his hands via a telegram sent to the Governor of the Falkland Islands, Mawson received his commission from King George V, endorsing him to claim any unclaimed land by planting the British flag reading an appended proclamation and attaching a copy of that proclamation to the flagstaff left in place as evidence of the ceremony. Jeff Maynard recently gave me a facsimile of the second, more directly applied documentation the same King gave Sir Hubert prior to his second Deception Island visit for aviation purposes, and I'll quote from the monarch's words to give you the flavour of such documentation. Brackets, caps lock, brackets. George, by the grace of God, of Great Britain, Ireland, and the British dominions beyond the seas, King, Defender of the Faith, Emperor of India, etc., 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 to all and singular to whom these presents shall come, greeting, brackets, caps lock off, brackets. Whereas our trusty and well-beloved Sir Hubert Wilkins, Knight Bachelor, is presently to conduct an expedition to that portion of the Antarctic regions lying between the Falkland Islands Dependencies and the Ross Dependency, and whereas we have judged it expedient to appoint a fit person to take possession in our name of such territories now unknown and situation in the aforesaid portion of the Antarctic regions as may be discovered in the course of the aforesaid expedition, now know ye that we, reposing a special trust and confidence in the discretion and faithfulness of our trusty and well-beloved Sir Hubert Wilkins, Knight Bachelor, aforesaid, have nominated, constituted, and appointed him to be our Commissioner for the purposes aforesaid, hereby giving and granting unto him full power and authority to do and perform during the course of the aforesaid expedition, 
either himself or through such persons under his direction and authority, as he may see fit to designate in writing for the purpose, all and every act and acts, thing and things, which he may lawfully do and perform for the fulfilment of the said purposes, whereof he shall give account to us in due course. In witness whereof we have caused our great seal, brackets, this refers to a large embossed and coloured star forming part of the stationery on which the typewritten text is proffered, and not to a particularly fine example of the genus Lobodon or the genus Arctocephalus, brackets, to be affixed to these presents, which we have signed with our royal hand, given at our court of St. James, the 21st day of August, in the year of our Lord, 1929, and in the 20th year of our reign. Historically, the power afforded monarchs is alleged to arise by divine mandate, and that lineage of crooked thinking is visible in the magical words on the magical paper that magically conferred claimsmanship on the individuals carrying the king's documentation. There's much about human societies that relies on no one ever calling out that the emperor is naked, but a more ridiculous mechanism founded on sillier premises I've yet to come across than this piece of paper conferring the potential to own a continental landmass by fiat, deriving ultimately from ancestral brutality, but which got written up in the history books as the deity of the time smiling on a particular individual and their heirs. After the better part of a decade in the service of the Discovery Committee, the Discovery was well set up for oceanography, with electrically and steam-powered sounding machines, but short on space for coal, being able to bunker regularly during its work around the Antarctic Peninsula, and badly in need of caulking and new rigging, for which it went to the yards at the East India Dock in London. The masts were set up bark-style, square-rigged on the fore and main masts, and fore and aft-rigged on the mizzen. A newfangled echo sounder, comprising a pneumatic hammer fitted to the hull to make the ping, which was more of a clang, I guess, and a receiver microphone, both wired to a timing unit housed in the chart room, was installed, and the Marconi radio sets were serviced and supplemented with a new shortwave telegraph transmitter. Royal Navy officers on secondment to the expedition included 1st Officer Kenneth Mackenzie, 2nd Officer William R. Colbeck, son of the William Colbeck who spent a winter at Cape Adare during Borschgrevink's Southern Cross expedition and returned to the Antarctic in command of the morning in relief of the discovery. 3rd Officer J.B. Child, Chief Engineer W.J. Griggs, 2nd Engineer B.F. Welch, and Petty Officer A.J. Williams as wireless operator. The eight able seamen, none of them much experienced in sail, signed on to man the windlasses, included J. H. Martin, who resigned a commission in the Guards Regiment to join the Discovery. Recent episode regular, Scottish marine ecologist Dr. James Marr joined the ship in London, as did Frank Hurley, photographer to Mawson's AAE and Shackleton's ITAE, Waddell Sea contingent, who signed on to once more head to the Antarctic, site of many, but not all, his past triumphs of the photographer's art. Hurley shipped in London with five cine cameras, including one able to film microscopic marine life, six still cameras, including a panoramic unit and an aerial survey camera, six kilometres of cine film, and 2,000 of his large format photographic glass plates, Hurley's weapon of choice in generating all of his most iconic images. New Zealander Richie Simmers, a student of one of the fathers of atmospheric science, Swede Carl Gustav Rossby, at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, joined as meteorologist. Professor Thomas Harvey Johnson of the University of Adelaide, famed in Australia for devising the biological demise of the introduced pest species prickly pear, joined as chief biologist. Fresh off the back of establishing one of the first diabetes clinics in Australia, Dr William Wilson Ingram joined as expedition medical officer always willing to lend his energy and attention to detail to the curation of biological specimens when not tending to patients. Royal Australian Navy Navigation Instructor, Commander Morton H. Moyes, who studied geology under Mawson and previously served in Frank Wilde's Western Party during the AAE and under John King Davis aboard the Aurora during the rescue mission to McMurdo Sound to extract the Ross Sea Party of the ITAE, 
joined as cartographer. Chemist Alf Howard joined the ship's complement at the invitation of his superior in the chemistry department at the University of Melbourne, Sir David Orme Masson, who visited him in his laboratory to casually inquire if he was at all interested in heading south as Benzari hydrologist, and sent him packing to London within a matter of days, a fast-tracked passport in his pocket, because it's good to have friends with leverage, I guess. Howard spent his time in England at the Plymouth Laboratories of the Marine Biological Association and the Fisheries Laboratories at Lowestoft, learning to use the latest oceanographic sampling and analytical equipment. New Zealander Robert Faller, later Sir Robert, in recognition to his services to science and the scientific heritage of New Zealand, chucked a teaching job with the Department of Education to join the expedition as ornithologist and assistant zoologist under Johnson. Flying Officer Stuart C. Campbell and Pilot Officer Eric Douglas were seconded from the Royal Australian Air Force to maintain and fly the civilian registered de Havilland DH-60G Gypsy Moth float plane on reconnaissance forays. Assistant Zoologist Harold Fletcher took leave of absence from his job at the Australian Museum to join the discovery after interviewing with Sir Edgeworth David and Sir David Orme Masson on his department head's suggestion to Sir Edgeworth a trustee of the museum, that the young naturalist and taxidermist constituted an excellent candidate for oceanographic work, having already sailed extensively on coastal trawlers in his work for the museum. Davis sent a telegram to Mawson that he intended departing London on the 12th of August and planned bunkering coal at Cardiff before heading south. Before leaving London, the discovery played host to over 200 guests, Sir Hubert Wilkins and Admiral Reginald Skelton, the father of the ship himself, see episode 28, among them. The Discovery sailed under the burgee of the Royal Thames Yacht Club. The Cardiff coal came aboard in the form of 11 kilogram briquettes, formed in a high pressure press and comprising high quality powdered anthracite, held together by a small inclusion of pitch. No smithy coal for the fireboxes of the Discovery, no. But even with the briquettes crammed into every nook and cranny and stacked on deck to almost level with the bulwarks, the hundreds of tons didn't constitute enough to keep the ship steaming on its long proposed voyage. Sails were slated to provide as much of the propulsion as the weather offered, and coal would dominate the expedition's path and achievements. Captain Davis ordered the ship searched for stowaways prior to the discovery casting off lines, but a 14-year-old boy, Leslie Sutton, turned up under the tarpaulin of the ship's boat, shortly after shooting the channel. Davis, a soft touch for young men with deep sea longings, might have kept him aboard, but Sutton's small frame and sickly appearance indicated against polar adventure. With the pilot boat to hand awaiting its cargo of pilot, the youngster was put ashore in Cardiff once more. The Australian contingent sailed for Cape Town aboard the steamer Nestor at the Blue Funnel Line, and Alf Howard and Richie Simmers departed Southampton aboard the Armadale Castle, with last-minute documentation from Lord Casey. Mawson and Davis's long association began on the Nimrod during Shackleton's BAE Mark II, during which Davis rescued his geologist friend from the crevasse he went down as the ship approached the magnetic pole party on the shores of Victoria Land. Davis carefully navigated Mawson's AAE to and from Commonwealth Bay, and a lot more sites besides, making a further voyage to collect the party spending a second winter at Cape Denison after Mawson's near-death march. Davis served as best man at Douglas and Paquita's wedding and advocated hard that Australia should capitalise on its established footing in the South alongside his friend. But the Banzari voyages strained the friendship almost from the word go. While aboard the Nestor, Mawson recorded in his diary... Unfortunately, Captain Davis has messed up a lot of arrangements I made when in London. I am very annoyed with him for this, for he has introduced very unnecessary complications into our equipment. Davis has not yet realised, I fear, that I am in command of the expedition, and that he is there to carry out my instructions. As you'll hear over and over again in episodes covering the Banzari, I side with Davis in most of these matters. I've worked with enough geologists to know that if you put them in charge of any vessel with complete authority, that vessel will sink under the weight of rocks that they pile aboard it. 
They can lower themselves into volcanoes and tote barrow loads of shale around all they want on their own time and dollar. But when other people's lives are at stake, I expect them to bow to the experts at keeping people alive in those circumstances, and to place their lithophilia as secondary to that goal. On the same day Mawson arrived in South Africa to join the discovery, and spoiling the mood set by his receiving his previously sought and refused boon in the form of the King's Commission, Finn Lutzau Holm also turned up. The Norwegian pilot's arrival in Cape Town sparked a great deal of press interest. Impressive headlines promising impressive newspaper sales will always see journalists play up the angles they think their editors and readers will find most salacious, and, as happened to Scott and Amundsen, and later Bird and Wilkins, the Australians and Norwegians found themselves cast in a race they didn't want to be perceived as part of, but which was actually what they were part of, though political expedience required that they deny being part of it. Mawson learnt, via the newspapers, the Norwegians were intent on dropping flags over those spaces their aircraft overflew, and while I and Sir Hubert already made our feelings on this as a means by which to extend a nation's influence known, the fact that Lord Casey asked Wilkins to do exactly that and that Wilkins did exactly that in the spirit Casey called for it, and that King George V endorsed those actions a priori in writing, and that Byrd was also dropping flags from his aircraft, made what I think of that gambit 90 years later moot to everyone at play in the conceptual and actual spaces at the bottom of the world in 1929. Lawson sent a telegram to London asking the government to request clarification from the Norwegian government, what were their intentions regarding territorial claims in Antarctica? The Norwegian government responded that they respected British claims in Antarctica as outlined in the 1926 Imperial Conference and that Lars Christensen's operations were privately funded and commissioned. Nice diplomatic hedging there. No denial that Norway would make formal claims over territory, but kicking the can down the road just enough that Britain couldn't afford to take official umbrage without looking like a load of whining entitlement junkies which they were, but which they didn't want to be perceived as. Before this diplomatic attempt at pouring oil on troubled waters arrived, Mawson responded to a telegram from the London Daily News asking for his comment regarding the race. Mawson bit the newspaper's bait and responded by disparaging the Norwegian efforts as an attempt to increase their greedy profiteering in the Southern Ocean at the expense of the whales where he primped and paraded his own expedition as a scientific endeavour aiming to improve the lot of humanity as a whole, failing to mention that he was hoping to increase his greedy profiteering in the Southern Ocean at the expense of the whales off the back of the findings of his scientific expedition. Mawson understood politicking the science, he just wasn't very good at it, and articles resulting from his telegraphic tirade saw friction between Norwegian and British interests in Antarctica set to smouldering. Lord Casey cabled Mawson that he should shut his fat mouth and tried to damp down the diplomatic tensions and to assuage the Norwegian public indignation that Mawson's rhetoric caused. The British government deferred further questions about Norwegian intentions in the South for fear that drawing further attention to the matter might put a bellows to that which was still only smouldering at that point. As with the French two decades earlier, Britain avoided broaching a subject on the chance the answers they received to their questions might not be to their liking. The British envoy to Norway stated that Britain didn't want to claim the entire continent, which was a lie, but one he had to tell in order not to make Britain appear the entitlement junkie it so surely was, also mentioning that the area between Enderby Land and Coatsland was up for grabs if Norway happened to be interested. Notice that Sir Clements Markham's ghost, ten years and more after his death, continues to hang over Antarctica in the sense that Coatsland was cited and named by William Spears Bruce, but Britain didn't recognise his achievements because a. he was Scottish, which isn't really British, except when the headcount from the north of the border happens to fall in favour of a British initiative, and b. Sir Clements didn't like him. Again and again that prick of a man's influence comes to the fore. If Markham wasn't such a priggish asshole, Coatsland could have been perceived inside Britain as dominionated, but because even Britain didn't see it that way, there was no way anyone else was going to accept it as such. I don't like Leo Amory much, but I do think his lot would have been easier had Britain chosen to laud Bruce's efforts, rather than to follow Markham's lead by shit-canning them to Scott's benefit and no one else's.
While in Cape Town, Davis, unhappy with the Discovery's performance as a bark, had the ship re-rigged as barkentine, losing the tagallants and yards of the main mast, the ship running square-rigged on the foremast and fore-and-aft-rigged on the other two. This left the ship presenting less cross-sectional windage when fighting adverse winds on a lee shore, something Davis knew, from hard-won experience, to expect in Antarctic waters. A modification Davis denied his officers and crew was the suggested erection of windbreaks in the form of canvas dodges around the railings of the open bridge. Captain Cook didn't have dodges on his ship, and neither will we. I like John King Davis, but I don't respect this nonsense. Captain Cook didn't have a triple expansion steam engine, an echo sounder, or a radio set, either. The de Havilland Gypsy Moth, with its wings removed, and a Tasmanian-built motor launch were lashed down on the deck grating where the ship's lifeboats were normally stowed. With nowhere to re-stow them, the lifeboats stayed on in Cape Town. Fifteen sheep and feed to keep them fed went aboard, as did fresh eggs and oranges, and coal to replace that used on the way down the Atlantic. Coal peaked out from every unused space aboard the Discovery, with Fletcher recalling it filled both the bathroom and the bathtub. Dynamite came aboard at the last minute, a bulwark against the ship becoming trapped among the pack ice. Explosives didn't do much to free ships from sea ice in the past, but it probably feels better to blow something up than to just sit and wait for the ice to make the next move. Mawson commented that the people of Cape Town could not have been more amenable and generous had the expedition been run under their own flag, and the Discovery sailed for the first time with its full expedition complement as it departed Table Bay on the 19th of October, 1929. Fletcher noted that the ship rolled far more than he expected, the rounded hull, great for working among ice, giving up the 45 degree departures from the vertical even in the light seas they first sailed into, but only Doc Ingram experienced seasickness, poor bastard. Stuart Campbell fell ill with what Ingram suspected was pneumonia complicating from a bout of flu he experienced in South Africa, and placed the aviator in quarantine. Coming as it did so early in the voyage, Campbell's illness cast a pall over the expedition for the week it took him to pass through the danger zone. Slow progress in the Southern Ocean saw Mawson ditch the idea of visiting Marion Island, instructing Davis to set a course for the Crozets. Storms and seabirds for a thousand nautical miles, with little distraction other than the return of Campbell to the world of the upright, awake and alert, and a couple of albatross caught by the ever-ingenious Hurley, who worked out how to bait for and land them like some sort of Aeolian angler. Soundings made in the calculated vicinity of Hog Island on the 1st of November found the shallowing benthos usually associated with land nearby, and the discovery set anchor in American Bay, Possession Island, on the afternoon of the 2nd of December. A South African sealing vessel, the Kilfornia, a former Q-ship built to combat German U-boats during the war, already occupied the bay, its crew mostly ashore killing elephant seals. The Discovery's motor launch and a dinghy were lowered, and the one towed the other through the heavy swell, the dinghy leaking badly and requiring almost constant bailing to stay afloat. The motor launch anchored outside the surf line of the bay's main beach, and the dinghy shuttled back and forth through the breakers to land the shore party, requiring even more bailing to keep afloat. The sealers, still hard at work at the bloody task of killing and flensing the local elephant seals and rendering the blubber for its oil, were pleased to learn the nationality of their visitors. The French claimed the Crozets and the Kerguelen Islands and declared them marine sanctuaries for marine mammals and birds, and while it would take more than some French profanities and a rapid-fire volley of surrendering to stop a sealer sealing, it was a source of mild relief that the newcomers were not French. The shore party spent two days collecting biological and geological specimens before returning to the beach for ferrying back to the Discovery, the most notable moment being Mawson most aptly telling Professor Johnson, carrying six large sets of elephant bull seal genitals for the sake of science, or something, to throw those fucking things away, shortly before boarding the dinghy. I've done a lot of biological specimen collections and understand the inclination to try to take home more material than you might actually need, 
and I'll grant that bull elephant seal genitals are impressive, but six sets does seem a bit much. Perhaps Johnson was planning on putting them in a bag so he could have the actual article on hand if Davis ever needed to tell Mawson to eat a bag of dicks. Actually, here's a good place to mention that Mawson, a naturally reserved person whose leadership mode is described by those who expeditioned under him as paternally authoritarian, rubbed a number of his fellow travellers up the wrong way. A nickname from his Commonwealth Bay days resurfaced. Cecil Madigan, meteorologist to the AAE, blurted out Duck's Ips, the leader himself, during a string of Latinate profanity spurred by his frustration at he and his colleagues being treated like children by the expedition's leader. Where Robert Falcon Scott's men referred to him as the owner, with some warmth, and Shackleton's crews called their leader the boss out of affectionate respect. Old Duck's Ips denoted mild distaste for Mawson's innate haughtiness, it seems it wasn't his knighthood that brought this to the table, but more Mawson's natural disposition when given a leadership role. Either way, he didn't like the epithet Madigan gave him, and did his best to erase it from his experience. The discovery departed the Crozets while the crew of the Kilfornia carried on poaching the French seals. I can't understand poaching. Almost everything tastes better if you're fried. As Captain Davis set a course for the Kerguelens, the zoologists got on with preserving their specimens, and Child prepared a chart based on the soundings and surveying he carried out, which promptly blew out of his hands and into the sea when he took it to the bridge to show his work to Captain Davis. To fulfil the scientific mandate he made so much of in the lead-up to the expedition, and in publicly castigating the Norwegians for their want of scientific endeavour, and thereby kicking off the diplomatic and media ructions, Mawson slowed all subsequent transits in order to deploy sampling gear, the slowest of the slowing down kit being the seafloor dredge, which returned all manner of benthic epifauna to delight spirits kindred to my own, but otherwise pissing everyone else off with the delay and the large quotient of faffing about the equipment involved. The discovery approached the Kerguelen through fog, but Captain Davis refused an offer of pilotage by a sealing vessel that approached to see if the expedition carried any mail for them. The still conditions required for fog to form meant that when the fog lifted as the day warmed, the discovery could enter the fjords leading to Royal Bay on a mill pond sea. Davis took the ship 26 miles up the Buenos Aires Channel to anchor offshore the abandoned Jean d'Arc whaling station where a South African whaler left a cache of coal for the discovery some weeks earlier. The remnant buildings of the French Enterprise were badly run down and overrun by large rats but the 400 tonne of briquettes delivered by the Irving and Johnson Whaling Company lay neatly stacked at the shore end of the rickety wharf the ship tied up alongside. A rail line and trolley served to speed the bunkering process, but the poor state of the tracks led to several derailments while the empty cart returned to shore, leading to many bruises and cuts among those riding it, but nothing more serious. In spite of all hands turning to the task, the first day of bunkering only shifted a third of the briquettes, at which point the Kilfornia arrived and requested to tie up alongside the wharf to water her tanks. Davis negotiated to move the discovery in time for the sealers to meet their deadlines by recruiting the South Africans to help shift briquettes and the job shrank to a two and a half day project, during which Mawson decided to science it up a bit by heading off on a two day natural history outing with five of the scientists. Departing Jean d'Arc on the 20th of November, his team took the motor launch up the northern reaches of the Buenos Aires Channel, all the while on the lookout for Samoyed dogs rumoured to inhabit the island, abandoned to their fate and running in feral packs. A coal seam, intertidal invertebrates, bird specimens and rock samples. Scientists' delight. Davis ordered the Discovery's third and last remaining lifeboat put ashore and mothballed to make space on the deck for the Gypsy Moth seaplane once Campbell and Douglas reassembled it. The ship moved out to Royal Bay in preparation for a morning departure for Heard Island, but the rapidly falling barometer indicated against upping stumps, and the resulting crook weather saw the Benzari stay on a further two days during which the motor launch served to make further collecting forays and allowed Doc Ingram to lay in a score of pintail ducks for the larder. On the 24th, the scientists manned the capstan to weigh the anchor and, 
on Mackenzie's suggestion, saying to give the work rhythm and make the time pass quickly, but, not knowing any sea shanties, complemented their efforts with a rousing rendition of Here We Go Round the Mulberry Bush, to the first officer's considerable disgust. Oceanographic stations were truncated affairs at this point, as the coal briquettes took up so much space on deck that the winches necessary to deploy plankton nets and the Nansen Pedersen bottles couldn't operate. Here's the rub. In heralding his expedition as scientific to the extent he did, Mawson tied his hands, forcing slower progress than the primary goals stipulated by the government mandating the voyages required, as the ship stopped to take samples, and carrying out oceanographic stations still burnt through coal, even though the ship gained no ground. Steam engines don't switch on and off, and donkey engines need steam, so the science program of the voyage, while giving the project projected validity, hamstrung its geographic goals by burning through the coal, limiting the distance it could travel, which then hamstrung the scientific goals because the ship couldn't stay in Antarctic waters and take more samples. The discovery could cover ground or take samples well enough for a ship of its age, but tasking it with both made it bad at both, and placed Mawson and Davis at continual odds with each other throughout the Banzari. The discovery reached Heard Island, a 20-mile-long, 16-mile-wide volcanic speck on the charts, featuring no safe harbours and holding a reputation for nearly continuous gales, the calm weather they experienced on the 26th, belying the island's fierce cachet. The motor launch shuttled a seven-person collecting party ashore with equipment and supplies for a two-night stay at a shipwreck refuge hut in Atlas Cove. Large numbers of elephant seals lay on the black sand beach, but no fur seals, the species still recovering from the caning given it by the sealers who erected the prefabricated Norwegian-made hut several decades earlier. The reputed poor weather turned up, and the two-night foray ashore turned into almost a week-long stay. The food brought ashore ran out, and the party began working through the emergency supplies that make a refuge hut something more than just a way for shipwreck victims to get out of the weather. Otherwise, the most notable event was the team's entrapment in the hut when a large elephant seal pushed through the doorway one night. Professor Johnson lost a lot of dignity, ineffectually trying to shoo the animal back out again, responding to a colossal and snotty sneeze from the animal by backing up, tripping over Fella, who was sleeping on the floor due to space constraints, at which Moyes almost laughed himself out of his bunk, and Doc Ingram woke up to wonder if he was dreaming or in a lunatic asylum. The weather settled enough for the motor launch to return to shore and collect the collectors on the 3rd of December, but the departure proved fraught. The boat's engine gave out, the fuel line experiencing a blockage. In dismantling the fuel feed, Eric Douglas dropped a component which, following the laws of dropped things, bounced onto the decking to settle at the least accessible part of the boat. Adrift and in danger from a lee shore and a reef awash in the swell, the boat's anchor went out but didn't find the bottom. Working hard against time and the vigorously rocking hull, Douglas cleared the blockage and lifted enough of the decking to retrieve the nut he dropped, reassembled the fuel feed and got the motor going once more. The shore party met the launch at the beach with their hurriedly packed equipment and their cache of specimens. Food sufficient to replace that used from the emergency stash went to the hut, while the launch received the gear and shore party, everyone hunkering down under a hastily applied tarpaulin for the bumpy ride back to the ship. Snow closed in, forcing Mawson to navigate by keeping the sound of breaking waves on the starboard beam, staying at the tiller until the wind-driven snowflakes hurt his eyes to the point he handed the helm to Eric Douglas. Doc Ingram, my emotional proxy in the expedition, was seasick. Reaching the ship, the challenge became getting everyone aboard in one piece. The scientists took turns jumping into the ship's shrouds as the launch reached the zenith of a swell which coincided with the beamy discovery rolling toward them. The ABs took care of getting the boat back on its davits in one piece, and with all their specimens still stowed. From Heard Island, Davis steered to reach the Antarctic coast in around the vicinity of the Gaussberg, using the echo sounder to test Mawson's idea that the ridge forming Heard Island and the Kerguelens comprised an unbroken submarine feature extending as far as that volcanic cone a prominent geographic feature during Drykelski's time on the Antarctic coast aboard the Gauss. See episode 26. With the deck finally cleared of cold briquettes, 
over 100 tonnes having passed through the firebox since bunkering from the cache at the Kerguelen's. Sampling at oceanographic stations kicked off again. Icebergs became a common sight, and then the Discovery encountered the pack. Captain Davis found it impossible to let anyone else helm while facing pack, and while I suspect this was because experience forced his hand to hold complete responsibility for the well-being of his crew and the soundness of his ship, the lack of confidence in his junior officers this was perceived as rankled. Progress remained slow for several days, and when Davis became too tired to helm, the ship hove to, rankling the junior officers and Mawson. An overall set to the northwest saw some progress toward Enderby land, but at mid-December, Mawson instructed Campbell and Douglas to assemble the Gypsy Moth that they might reconnoitre the situation and find the most productive course for the ship, though horizon-to-horizon -horizon ice blink didn't bode well. A lot to sign off at the end of this episode. I send congratulations in the direction of Iceland, where longtime Ice Coffee listener Stephanie recently became engaged to Biaki. The big, goofy smiles showing in the photographs I've received from the glaciers they work on and met on prevented this news coming as a surprise, but I'm no less happy to receive it. I don't have any Arctic contracts set for this northern summer, but I'll see if I can arrange a second parcel of Milo and Vegemite as an engagement present. I'm also firing congratulations due south to Zoe in Hobart, whose recent acceptance for a science journalism cadetship with the Australian Broadcorp castration could not have gone to a more worthy candidate. I also owe an apology to Andrea. I dropped the ball, and I'm sorry for the distress that caused you. I'm recording this on the second anniversary of the death of my brother-in-law Patrick, who I like to think would be quite proud of where I've taken my career and my podcasting in the two years since returning home from the time spent in palliative care for him. Take care, and appreciate you.